A reading from Luke 2, 22 through 38. When the time came for the purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated to the holy, as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought the child, Jesus, to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which has has been prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed." And a sword will pierce your own soul, too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At the moment she came... At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. The Gospel of the Lord. Wonderful. The beginning of Advent is always an amazing season in many different ways. Some might not be used to even the word Advent. Some might not be used to going through the church calendar. It is, as you heard earlier, a season of waiting. If you're here with your family, if you've come in for the weekend for Thanksgiving, it's great to have you. Welcome. Uh, We hope you enjoyed the city. Uh, The weather has treated us well over this Thanksgiving uh, weekend. So before I jump in, why don't you pray with me as we start? God, we could do so many things and look in so many directions to seek, to satisfy, to hope. And yet we, we gather tonight to come to you. We gather to confess how much we need you, how much our hearts and our, our deep desires are after you. We seek after you. We come to hear your voice. But we need you, Spirit of God, as you were on Simeon in the story. Would you come and be on us tonight? Would you come and speak to us? move in us, stir in us things in ways. Won't you come and heal the brokenhearted? Won't you come and do what you do so well by drawing us unto yourself, by exalting Christ in our midst through this text we pray. Amen. When I came to America, I was astounded that I could take a photo of a check 
And it would be in my bank account the next day without going to the bank or verifying that it is real or okay. Praise the Lord. In the 1800s, a voyage back to Africa would have taken me between six weeks and three months, depending on the wind. Now, it could take me as little as 14 and a half hours on one plane, or even better, or quicker, shall I say, a click, and my parents' face is in front of me on a screen, and we're talking to each other live, real time. What a world! I grew up giving my age away. In high school, I did not have a cell phone. Our world is unwaveringly committed to eradicate waiting from our lives. And with it, possibly patience as well. Now these are not bad things. These are amazing things. Think of the speed of medical help that could come now compared to years ago. The speed of technology that saves us years on our life. But the reality is this, that waiting, slowness, pondering, preparing was built into our humanness. And yet we spend so much time, energy, and effort trying to get rid of it in so many ways. And this sincerely will affect our humanity. The seasons make us wait and pause and process. I loved moving to New York where the distinct seasons are so distinct. Sorry, Californians. Even an impulsive conception has us at least waiting and preparing for nine months for that which is to come. I say that knowing that our first child was adopted and we had two weeks to prepare. We were not prepared. Lisa always says that going from one kid to going to two is like going from owning one pet to owning a zoo. You just are not prepared. And yet waiting, preparing, has been built into the very fabric of humanity but we try to avoid it day after day. While we wait, God is at work. Challenge is that we don't recognize it. He works while we don't notice him working. While we are trying to make sense of our waiting, he's at work. We don't pay attention and we don't notice his activity and we don't trust him because we don't notice. And therefore, what we do is we give up on the waiting and we start making our own plans because we're not comfortable in the waiting. We're not okay with the waiting. We've been taught not to be okay with the waiting. Anna and Simeon waited their whole lives for this moment. It was a beautiful picture of patience. 
Now, it's not easy to talk in Advent without acknowledging that walking this earth and finding peace is a hard thing to do. Inside of us, it would seem something is at odds with the very rhythm of the things that we experience. And we are forever restless, dissatisfied, frustrated, and aching. We are so overcharged with desire that it is hard to come to simple rest. Desire seems to always outweigh our satisfaction. The rat race. We wake up tomorrow morning, we get on another train, and we start it over again. We are driven persons, forever obsessed, living lives, as once was suggested, of quiet desperation. Only occasionally finding moments of peace. Ronald Rollheiser said the spirituality is ultimately about what we do with that desire. What we do with our longings, both in terms of handling the pain and the hope that they bring us. That is our spirituality. Most of us have a longing to connect to what is transcendent and meaningful. That's why the Alpha Course that we spoke of earlier is a moment where we invite our world to a dinner table and we ask this question, is there more to life than this? Can we take a step out of the rat race and just consider the significance of the longings that are still at war inside of us? We want to make a contribution that matters. We want to know the fierceness and the tenderness of love. Most of us want to know the vigor of overcoming obstacles and letting go of lesser things to see and to be a part of something great, bigger than ourselves. But we also fear the disappointment of failure. We fear the embarrassment of actually going after those things and not succeeding. Sometimes we're so intimidated by the intensity of our longings and the prospect of their not being met that we, f- that we find ways to consciously and unconsciously bury our longings. Wealth, marriage, achievement, we fear our own failure in satisfying these very things. So we wrap ourselves in small entertainments, television, little luxuries or busynesses, in lusts or regiments, disciplines, so that we don't have to listen to the torrent of desire that's going on underneath the surface of your and my life. Sometimes we even fool ourselves to think that we are satisfied. If God really made us and made us full of longings, if he put these deep desires inside of us, that he intends to fulfill, it would be a great tragedy to live, quote, too easily satisfied. This is from C.S. Lewis. If I find myself with a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Can we prove that? No, we cannot. But the most probable explanation that there is something greater that we can experience. Advent is a season where we're invited to lay our hearts bare and be honest about what we're most passionately hoping for. That's what we're doing. That's what we're invited to tonight.
The question is, how does this connect and interact with what God is doing in the world? How do the desires in us that we are often at war with connect in this way? And we're going to look at Simeon and Anna tonight very briefly. We're going to look at the world that they lived in. We're going to look at the world that they longed for. And then we're going to look at how did they live within the tension as we seek to answer the questions about the hope we have for our world. So first off, the, the world that they were in is often misunderstood. This is a world where God, who used to speak through the prophets, even when it was correcting Israel, he spoke. His presence was there. There were miracles. There were things happening that showed the people of God that God was present. And all of a sudden, from the book of Micah, 400 years of complete silence. God is not speaking. They were immersed in a world where God was silent while they were longing for redemption. Why? One, because they had severe political turmoil. Some of us, you may be sitting here and you are abhorred at the idea of something like abortion. In their day, it was almost one step further. The days that Jesus was born into, there was mass genocide of babies that were being born. Male babies were all just slaughtered. The firstborn male. This is the political climate within which they were born into. That is no small thing. And in our day and age, we would be in uproar saying something has to change. The political climate was certainly not something that was stable. And the Jewish nation was longing, in this particular instance, for a political savior, for someone to come and overthrow the oppression that they were under regarding Roman rule. Peter, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, right at the end of Jesus' life, skipping to the end, he pulled out a sword and tried to cut off the guy's ear because he was still longing, looking, and waiting for some kind of uprising to overthrow the Roman government. Here's giving away the end. He was looking for a temporary solution to eternal longings being satisfied. And we do exactly the same thing. We look at our world and we say, something is not right. Something is not okay. Most of our political campaigns that were waged over the last few months was based on this premise. Things are not okay. They need to be fixed. But the world they were waiting for was this. I'm going to describe it to you from Isaiah chapter 2. This was part of the prophetic genre, the literature, points to a world that is being promised to them and they are longing for this world. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days to to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills and all the nations shall shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his 
ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now, a quick aside, the lighting of the candles is the symbol that the light of the Lord is accessible to us and that His light in His coming, this is what this points to. This prophecy points to what Jesus would bring when it says He brings light into our dark world. What is this new world they were longing for? One, all are welcome. It says all peoples will have access to the very presence of God. It says that God would be in their midst, that His very presence, not just the idea of Him, not just a church with beautiful pictures of Him that you can't see when the sun's not shining through them. But He, His light, His very presence, the power of God for life will be in our midst. That He would be a just King, we looked at that last week, that He would reign in righteousness That we would be able to learn his ways, not only learn his ways, but that we could walk in those ways, in the ways of righteousness and justice. That those who are at war will take their weapons and turn them into objects that can cultivate thriving among people. Swords will be turned into plowshares. This was the world that they were longing for. Darkness disappears in his light. War turns to peace and his people become the light for all to see how life ought to be. This was the world that they were longing for. Isaiah envisions a future in which Jerusalem, as the site of his temple, would be the model for how life would be when it was thriving. A world that they were longing for. Are you longing for a new world to live in? Your own personal world? You could think right now, and I think we should. This time is the time where we stop and we think and we consider instead of rushing off to solutions, instead of rushing off to the next thing. This is the time where we go, what about my life is still lacking? What, what about my life is not the way I know God longs for it to be? What about my life is still not in this place of thriving? But secondly, not just my life. What about the life, the country, the nation, the world at large that we live in is still not as it ought to be? Let us ask these questions when policemen are still killing innocent people. And when people are still killing policemen, and when racial injustice is still as thriving as it was just a few years ago, and it seems to be getting worse, and when the poor are still marginalized, and the income gap is still growing, and people are suffering under these circumstances, and when Christians, us who call ourselves Christ followers, still put a kind of judgment upon others who do not agree with us and still call them less human than we are. 
And when we marginalize certain sets of people to the outskirts of society and love them less, and then we just look at Jesus and we look at how he loved, and he loved those very people who we ostracize. He was ridiculed. He was called a drunkard because he had the audacity to go hang out with those who were outcast in society. When he met with the woman at the well, it was an outrageous thing to do. He, he was not protecting his reputation when he did so. I think we do not have to go far to recognize that our world is in desperate need of change. What is the world that you are longing for as we look at these scriptures? Here is a great picture of that world in the form of a video. This is a video from a guy called Jeremy Courtney. He's, he's taught here before uh, from this stage, but his ministry um, is in the Middle East, and he is in the middle of the conflict zone um, with ISIS, and he is literally trying to combat a war, an actual physical war with love. His ministry is called Preemptive Love. This was a message he sent to us for us to see. And uh, by the way, this is also some of where the money for our Christmas offering goes. Have a look. Okay, so I'm here just north of the Mosul city limits near the front lines where we've still got airstrikes and arms fire going off in the distance in a small village that was just liberated from ISIS control. After years of ISIS living in this village, fighting in this village, making plans to attack other people from this village, and we come back now, and the place is destroyed. The, the church building is destroyed. In fact, we were just inside the sanctuary. And I was struck when I walked in by the markings on the walls, the way that they just can't leave a place be. They had to, they had to mark their territory. They had to put their names on the walls and put their sayings on the walls and claim this place for their own. And on the columns, the words were written, God is great. And our priest friend that we were here with, we asked him, we said, we say this too, we believe God is great. And he said, yes, but God is great because God is love. And that's what I'm so reminded here today as we come back into this place that's just been freed from ISIS control, as, as we go toward the front lines, as we're headed towards civilians who need our help, who need food, who need water, who are searching for safety. Our priest friend is reminding us, is preaching this gospel to us. God is love. God pushes into hard situations with love. God lays down God's life in love. And so this is who we're trying to be. We're trying to be those who would even lay down our life for others because God is great, because God is love. Thanks for being here with us. We're going to keep preaching that message to ourselves. We're going to keep saying it to the world. There's a lot of death surrounding us, but there's a lot more love. Thanks for being here with us. We do get to be part of that. It's not just platitudes. We actually get to help what's on the ground there. But the contrast between the world we're in and the world we long for is so stark. There is a song that I remember growing up. I don't know if you remember it, about the goodness and the greatness of God that 
that is sung to kids and by kids. And it basically go, goes like this. My voice is still struggling from um, a illness, as you can hear. Uh, that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. Um, but it goes something like, if God was very, <clears throat> if God was very good, and He was very small, you remember that? It's an African thing, obviously. <laughs> then this good news is really no good news at all. And if God was very big, but He was very bad, then this whole world will be very, very sad. Powerful words that the God that we serve and we claim the same claim, God is great. The distinguishing factor is this His greatness is in His love. He is powerful, all powerful. He is omniscient and omnipotent. But He is a loving God. What does this mean for our world? The world that you are in. It, do you find yourself in a kind of vacuum, a, a silence from God, where you have not heard His voice, where you have not experienced His presence, and you yourself feel like you're in 400 years of silence? The only picture I have in my mind is a cone of silence. Remember that movie? What was his name? Anyone, help me. Steve, Steve Farrell? Steve Carell, Steve Carell, sorry. Steve Carell, a cone of silence. Some of us live in this cone of silence and we, we're expecting God to come. It just feels like whatever God is doing, it just bounces off and we're not able to notice. Some of us are in massive unrest and turmoil. Some of us are experiencing just a war inside. And what is the world that you are looking for and longing for? Can you describe it? Can you see it? Can you stop today and as we light the candle of hope, can you hope for it? How do you live in the tension between the world that you are in right now and the world that you are longing for? You might be in a place where you, oh God, I'm just longing to get married and have a family, but I'm nowhere near that. What is that? How do I live in that, that, that tension? God, I'm longing to just be out of debt. God, I'm longing to be reconciled to a spouse, a loved one. In my marriage, God, I'm just longing for peace and I don't know how to get there. We live within these tensions. This is a picture of a statue at the United Nations building. This is a declaration from our culture that we long for the very thing. Like any great piece of art, he is naked and ripped. <laughs> and I chose, chose the, the photo with the most safe angle for, for this experience. But he is actually beating a sword into a plowshare. The symbolism of this Isaiah 2 passage is still around us even right now. We long for human thriving. How did they do it? Four things as we end. One, they noticed that God is at work even in the silence. 
They had a deep conviction that God is still God. He is still at work. Anna and Simeon still gave themselves to the reality that God is true to his word. That he will bring about a new world. A new world that is, that is free from the brokenness and the darkness of the world that they were experiencing. And for us to live within the tension and long for that world. How do we hope in a world like the one that you're in personally and the world that we find ourselves in? We have to know that God is at work. Even when it seems completely contradictory. And I'm going to push on a pain point now. Because I know we have people who voted in both directions. Or maybe even more directions. Because there's not just both apparently. There's green and red and blue. And many different things. I'm still getting to know the American system. Some of us have lost hope because of the way the election went. And we have forgotten that God is still at work even when it doesn't seem like the circumstances allow for it. That's a hard place to get to. And yet, for them, they lived in dire circumstances. Let's look at their circumstances. They hoped even within the silence. And in the silence, let me say this quickly, in the silence, we somehow expect God to break that silence in a very specific way. We expect God to come on a white horse and save the day. He broke 400 years of silence and despair for the nation of Israel, dominated by Roman oppression. He broke the silence with a baby's cry. And when Simeon took that baby in his hands and he said, now I have seen the salvation of God, I wonder how many around him just went, oh, we're toast. A baby, this is it, God? This was your master plan? Sometimes the silence in our lives that we are longing for, the turmoil is broken in ways that we don't want. We want it another way, but can we trust God being at work within the silence? Number two, we mourn, but we mourn with hope. I realized I said mourn twice in two different accents in that sentence right now. I get mocked for saying the R's and not saying the R's. We mourn, (laughs) but we mourn differently. We mourn as those with hope. Let's see this particular example. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, and he distinguishes our mourning, our grief, from every other grief that we should be experiencing. And you might be in many different kind of stages of grief and places of grief right now in your life, but this is what he says in 1, Corinthians 4, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. This is a text based on those who've just experienced death, those who have died, and, and the people are mourning As if they had no hope. This is what he said. Now concerning love of the brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anyone write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God how to love one another. Indeed, you do love all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, beloved, do so more and more to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we directed you so that you may behave properly towards outsiders and be dependent on no one. He's, he's setting the stage saying, you love each other as a community so well. But you also have a responsibility towards those outside of the community. 
the way that you're going through your greatest challenges, and he's going to explain it now, the way you go through your greatest challenges is a witness to an outside community of where your hope lies. This is what he says. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. There is a new way that we mourn, everything that we mourn. Everything of the current world that you're in right now that you mourn, everything that we mourn as a nation right now, the struggle, the turmoil, the death, the the death, the divisions, all of these things we mourn, but we do not mourn as those who have no hope. And tonight we come and we light the candle of hope and we say, God, help us to mourn, but as those with hope. What is this hope? The very next point is this. Hope is discerning the eternal from the temporal. What Paul is doing in this passage is he's saying, you mourn over their death as if this is their final moment. You mourn as if this was what they were created for. Remember, there's something far greater, more eternal. Sometimes we try to satisfy our eternal longings with temporary solutions. I'll give you an example. Our deepest longings to be loved, we somehow look at relationships, sex, marriage, to fill those deepest longings. And what inevitably happens is we put such an expectation on that other person or on the sexual encounter that we completely come out the other side more dissatisfied than we even went in. We put our hopes for a new America in a political person, a party, or policy. And we forget that those things cannot satisfy the eternal longings of peace that we have that can only come through our eternal Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We come today to the candle of hope and we see that we can hope because we have an eternal picture, a picture far bigger than the one that we can see. There's so much that we can't see. And so we mourn, but we mourn with hope. Not too long ago, we had Lucy's funeral in this very building. And in that moment afterwards, this was a girl who died very prematurely from cancer. And afterwards, I was talking to a group of people, and the conversation beautifully went from an agony of why would she die at 24 or however old she was? Why is this world the way it is? Almost despair. It shifted. It shifted to the point where if she had gotten healing, why? Some of the questions was, God, why did you not heal her? We don't understand. And we will not understand. But our consolation came when the revelation entered into the conversation, which was this. She could have been healed, and you know what? She would have eventually died anyway. It would have prolonged her life on earth. God, that would have been amazing. But she could have died at at a really good old age from all good things, partying hard, 
That could have happened. But we do not mourn as those without hope because there is a greater future that this world is not our ultimate end. The temporary things can be taken away. Thirdly, we seek comfort in Jesus. Jesus is the only place that we can find comfort for our mourning. Simeon looked for the consolation in this baby's birth. And it says he spoke the consolation. He speaks something dramatic over Mary's life. And he says, he blessed them. This is the words of the text. He blessed them. And then he says to Mary, a sword will pierce your soul. What kind of a blessing is that? I don't want that. Take it back. Why? What did he see? He saw beyond the temporal. He saw beyond the pain that she would experience. When she saw her own son being crucified, he saw beyond a temporary solution for an eternal longing. So we seek our comfort in Jesus. And the reason we can find our comfort in Jesus is because he is the God, the only one who claimed that he came to earth, that he experienced what you experienced. He experienced racial divide. He experienced ridicule. He experienced obscurity. He experienced rejection from the clo- those closest to him. He experienced rejection, a face turning away of his father, leaving him on the cross because of that moment of darkness that he paid for you and for me. He experienced everything that we find disconcerting with our current world. And he said, I have experienced it and I have brought you hope. We can find our consolation in him and only in him because he experienced it and he brought us hope because he was raised again. Jesus, the consolation of Israel. And then lastly, we live in a new way. Not only did Simeon speak about the consolation, the comfort that we're longing for. But Anna spoke about the redemption of Israel. That was her prophecy. And the redemption is this. We do not get to wait in our self-pity in this world saying that one day maybe that'll happen. No, Jesus came and he overcame sin and death so that we might start to live in the victory of the world to come. And so my invitation at the end of this talk is for you to come and join me. To join me and say, we will not be okay with the status quo of our current world. We will not be okay when women are treated as less human than men. We, are not, we will not be okay when sectors of society will be either sexualized, as in the woman, or put it marginalized and put some kind of expectation on slave labor. We will not be okay with the racial divides that happens within our society. And we will not be okay with the very hate that's in my and your heart. We will not be okay. We will long for and look for redemption. And as Isaiah 2 says, we will learn from his ways and we will walk in his paths. So as we come to think about hope tonight, we look at the candle and we say, God, we acknowledge the world that we're in and we acknowledge that it is hard. It is hard. We also acknowledge that there is a world that is greater and better and we can have access to it now by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given upon Simeon to notice and to empower. And the Holy Spirit is given to us as a generation 
as a seal, as a deposit, guaranteeing that which is to come. We can have access to it now. And so as you come, even now, to the communion table, as you come to this promise made possible by the body of Christ broken for us and the blood of Christ shed for us, we come confessing our dis-ease with our current status quo. We come and we partake knowing that Christ has paid the way for us to experience the new world. And then we come asking and experiencing God change this world now through me, through us as your people. Picture in Isaiah 2 is of Jerusalem, of the people of God and all nations flocking to the people of God, learning His ways and then living in His ways. We get to do that. We get to live that out because Jesus made the way for us. Won't you stand with me?